Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, you are very welcome to The Tonight Show. The sister of George Nakensho speaks after the news that the Director of Public Prosecutions is to decide if a Garda who shot the 27-year-old is to be prosecuted. Relief. Relief that we weren't all crazy and that we, somebody else sees that maybe something did go wrong on that day and that maybe there are questions that need to be asked and somebody needs to answer these questions. So it was just relief that we felt that it was moving and progressing in the right direction. Historical convictions for the committing of sexual acts between consenting men to be finally disregarded. And 37 hours and counting the frantic search to find five people in a submersible close to the shipwreck of the Titanic. It's going to depend on what they find, what what needs to be, uh, what steps need to be taken next. And uh, and really that is for the experts within the Unified Command um, to take a look at and then, and then uh, decide what the best course of action is. To join the conversation online with your comments and your questions, it's hashtag tonight, VMTV. Well, the sister of a man shot dead by Gardy in the front garden of his family's home has said somebody needs to answer for her brother's death. George Nkancho was shot in Cluny in Dublin in December 2020 by Gardy responding to reports of a man in the area armed with a knife. The Garda watchdog, GSOC, has sent a file on his killing to the Director of Public Prosecutions. Gloria Nkancho spoke to me earlier and began by telling me how she felt when that decision was made. Relief. Relief that we weren't all crazy and that we, somebody else sees that maybe something did go wrong on that day and that maybe there are questions that need to be asked and somebody needs to answer these questions. So it was just relief that we felt that it was moving and progressing in the right direction. What are the questions and the concerns that you and the family have at this point, Gloria? Why did it happen? Why did it happen and why did it happen that way? That would be our main, most of our concerns right now. Can you elaborate on that? Why was he killed? Why was he killed in the manner that he was killed in front of his house, in front of his siblings while they were aware that people were in the house? Those are the concerns that we have right now. I know you have been told not to speak about the events of December 30th, but they're probably still very fresh in your mind? Yeah, they are fresh in my mind, but I try and not think about it or dwell on it too much right now. Do you replay them? Of course, we do. Um, I still live in the Blanchetown area. I still replay them if I ever drive past the 
house or my old house or even the roots. I replayed it all the time. You say that there has been an injustice here. What is the injustice and how would you see that being rectified? Injustice in terms of how we've probably been treated, especially even like on social media and like being questioned as well as to why we feel the way we feel, as if it's something new to feel sad or to feel hurt by the taking away of your loved one. That would be sort of an injustice to us. How it can be rectified is by getting justice and getting an acknowledgement that something went wrong and this shouldn't have happened. So what does justice look like for you and your family? Well, for me, justice would look like accountability and an acknowledgement to say this was wrong and to admit that this was wrong. That would be just what justice looks like for me, for my family. Obviously, I can't speak for all of them at the moment, but I would say they would also look at the accountability for someone taking accountability for what happened. That would be what justice would look like as well for them. But what do you mean, I suppose, by accountability? Like, to admit to, admit to it, to admit that this was wrong, then, like, because of the narrative that we've always been told that, oh, he deserved it, he needed to die, there was nothing they were, could do, it, they were doing their job. To admit that he didn't deserve to die, there was probably more that could have been done. That, that is the accountability, and to admit that it was wrong. Something along the lines went wrong. Somebody, someone, I don't know, but something was not, because this can't be the procedure to handle incidents like this. Because if it was, then maybe many people would die in similar situations. But has anybody died in a situation like this before? What would you like the DPP to do then? I would like the DPP to prioritise this case and to look at it deeply and thoroughly and come to a timely decision that is... decision that is maybe, I don't know what the word is, but right, that would be what I would want DPP to do. But does that look like a charge, a charge against the individual or individuals responsible for this? It could, it could be a charge. I don't know the options available to the DPP, so I can't speak on that, but if a charge is what they seem is right, then a charge should be brought. For me, a charge can't bring back my brother, so I can't even say that that would give me total satisfaction because the worst has happened already. But at least let's do what we can to ensure that this type of incident does not occur again. And whatever decision they make will set a precedent. So it is imperative that they thoroughly look at this file and know whatever decision and whatever conclusion that they come to is setting a precedent. What kind of precedent? That. What kind of precedent? setting a precedent that maybe people with mental health illnesses shouldn't be treated differently or shouldn't be treated with better care as being the most vulnerable in our society. This, the procedure that you would use for somebody that maybe is mentally sane is the same as the procedure that you should use for mental, people with mental illness and that's not true. People with mental illness are a lot more vulnerable and this require a lot more care. You also said yesterday that there was a question that needed to be asked and that is would the response have been 
different if the victim had been a middle-class white boy from a leafy suburb in Dublin. Can you elaborate on that further? There's definitely a class and racism issue here as well. If this was a person maybe from, like I said, South Dublin, maybe not the north side, who was white, the response would definitely be different. If you just even look at the response online, it's a lot of focus on his colour and where he was from and the area that he lived in. This would not, that would not be happen if he was from a different area, if he was maybe a different colour as well. So are you talking about the response from the public, the response from the media, or the response from the Guardi? All three. The response from the Guardi, there's definitely racial bias within the Guardi. Surveys have been done on that, that's clear. The response from the public, I've seen as well. I know a lot, I know empty barrels do make the most noise, but we have seen a lot of negative response from the public. In terms of the media, the first response was to carry a narrative that was wrong. There was headlines immediately after his death which labelled him a thug, which labelled him a maniac, which labelled him an immigrant. And that was what was carried for such a long, which even went as far as saying that there was convictions, which wasn't true. And it was the fact that it was so easily believed and so easily accepted. So you feel there, there is an issue here, a lack of understanding, a lack of yeah. empathy, a different response because he was a person of colour? I do feel like there has been a lack of empathy for sure, because not, not just because he was a person of colour, but because of the class that he was in, from maybe from the area that we were, we're from a working class area. So yes, race, race is an issue, but they should also know that class is also an issue here. There has definitely been a lack of empathy, and I think it would be, it wouldn't be smart or even like wise to say that no, there's not a lack of empathy. There is definitely a lack of empathy. The fact that I, even after his death, I had to go out and explain and make people understand that my family is sad. Of course we will be sad. Of course we feel away. The fact that I have to answer to the fact that, oh, how do you feel? How would you feel? You have to explain a trauma for something that should be understood regardless, because pain is pain. Do you have any sympathy at all for the situation that the guards and the armed response units find themselves in that day? Yeah, I do. I do. Because maybe it's a procedure thing, maybe it's a policy thing. I'm not in their minds. I do have sympathy. They are, like I am a human being, they are also a human being. I can't speak to what was going through their minds that day or what influenced them to do what they did. So to say that I don't have sympathy would be a lie to myself. I do have sympathy for them as well. It's not an easy job. And you accept that they have to make split-second decisions and try and, I suppose, make an assessment of the risk in stressful circumstances? Like I'm not a guard, so I don't have their training or their understanding, so I can't really speak to that. I do know that they're probably held to a higher standard because their duty is to serve and to protect. On Guardia Shirkana means the protectors and the, or the guardians of peace. So that is what their duty is. And they are to protect the people in society as well. And my brother was in society as well. So they had a duty to protect not only the people that they felt were threatened by your brother that day, but to him himself? Yes.
because he's also part of society. There was, of course, speculation that he was carrying a knife. We know that there was that altercation in a supermarket earlier in the day and that there had been attempts to tase your brother, we understand, and to disarm him. Do you accept all of those as facts? I can't really speak to that at the moment because there is an investigation going on. According to the Guardi, lethal force is meant to be used in exceptional circumstances. Were these exceptional circumstances, do you think? Lethal forces, but again, I do not receive the trainings that the Guardi have received, so I cannot define what a lethal, um, what an exceptional circumstances could have been to them and what they have been trained to. So I, I can't, again, speak to that. Tell me about your brother's mental health, particularly in the weeks and the months coming up to his death. My brother had suffered from mental health issues for maybe the past four or five years and we, he was in the process of being involuntary committal and we were making steps towards that, but if there was a delay. And coming up to that, um, I think it was in like a week or two before Christmas or so, my sister started doing extra work while we were waiting for him to be involuntary committed. And she made calls to different centres and left messages. Maybe they were, they were, I think they were closed due to the fact that it was Christmas and so close to the holidays. And we only received callbacks after he had passed, which was in the new year. You have become your brother's spokesperson, as it were, haven't you? Yes, I would say so, yeah. What drives you to do that? I have to do what I have to do. It's now become my role and I just have to do what I have to do. And I don't want his death to be in vain. Yeah. Has that come at a personal cost? Yes, it has. But I just look at the bigger picture and hope that everything that I do and stepping out of my comfort zone and doing things that I don't normally would do or I'm not comfortable doing will pay off for him. It's the least that I could do. What aspect of it is the most difficult? Having to talk about it constantly and explain it constantly, I think, because you're just reliving it constantly. And that's the aspect that's most difficult to me. What do you want for George now? I want his name to be Peace. I just want him to be at peace. That's all I want. And do you feel he is not at peace now? His family aren't at peace, so how would he be? Ultimately, Gloria, you feel there are lessons to be learned and that the outcome could have been different here. Yeah. Yeah, I do. There are lessons to be learned and I hope, I hope I hope people do learn them, if they do. I can't, I don't know if I can change anybody else's mind anymore. I think I've done the best of my ability at this point, but I'll continue trying. Gloria yeah. Nchenko, thank you for speaking to us on the programme. Thank you for having me. Gloria Nchenko speaking to me earlier today.
Now, moving on, the government says it will move to disregard historical convictions for the committing of sexual acts between consenting men. Homosexuality was illegal in this country until 1993, just 30 years ago. Plans to legislate to ban conversion therapy were also announced today. Let's bring in tonight's panel. I am joined by editor of The Business Post, Daniel McConnell, Green Party TD, Nasa Hurgan, Social Democrats TD, Catherine Murphy, and Carl Hayden from LGBT Disregard. You're all very welcome to the programme. Carl, I want to come to you first because I have to be honest, my first reaction today when I heard this was one of surprise. I just assumed, as I think many other people would have done, that these convictions had been quashed a long time ago. No, unfortunately, it's the case that uh, a, quite a significant number of people have had to live with this uh, aspect of their life still hanging over them and that no move had been made until now in order to take that away. How many people are we talking about here? How many convictions? The numbers are hard to estimate because partly the way the records were kept, uh, also because of the nature of the legislation or the, the, the laws that were used against uh, gay men. So we know that the Taoiseach said in 2018 that the number was around 450 between the period of mid-1960s to the late 1980s. Um, we know that perhaps the last convictions were in around 1987, there thereabouts. Um, so the numbers are something that we can't put a, an exact figure on. It's going to take a bit of work to try and find them out. Also, the, the way the records are kept, it's very hard to know. You can't just go back to a, 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 an index file somewhere and just pull them all up and get the exact number. So it will take a bit of work to find them out. We know that, as I said there, um, homosexuality was decriminalised in this country in 1993, but do we know how close to 1993 these convictions were still happening? Well, as I said, up until about 1987, we think, was when the last ones uh, happened. Um, there were attempts uh, probably after that to bring convictions, but by that stage, like the work of, of David Norris, David, Senator David Norris, Garrett Sheehan, who went on to become a judge, but he was a barrister at the time, helped to actually get a lot of the cases dismissed. So it could have gone on after that period of time, but because of the success rate that we had and the courts were, there was a changing attitudes in society, courts were probably less inclined to, uh, you know, to, to convict and things like that. Um, so it's, it's hard to know for sure. What impact would it have had to have had one of these sort of convictions? This was a criminal conviction on your record. Well, you can imagine if somebody was working in a sensitive uh, kind of job that that would probably mean the end of their career in that job because they'd have to notify their employer that they had received a, a criminal conviction. Um, people who may try to find new jobs may have to explain that they had this criminal conviction and what the nature of it was. Depending on when it happened, attitudes were either accepting or dismissive or whatever about uh, the conviction that they had. But quite often people would have said that this is not you know, they're not going to get a job as a result of it. We know also that for people who left the country, and quite a lot of people would have left the country, that they wouldn't have been able to maybe apply for citizenship in those countries. And perhaps even to this day, for, for all we know, there are individuals who are living in countries, they've never been able to apply for citizenship. Uh, and now, if this comes true, they will have that opportunity. Opportunity. Yeah, I suppose, Catherine, the one thing to take from that is given the fact that this was something that was very real in people's lives, this actually did have an impact perhaps on how you could live your life. It is a pity it's taken to 2023. Yeah, and I've got to say, I, I completely understand your your reaction. I've got to say, it, it, 
you know, it's very welcome what, what has been announced today, a number of things that have been announced today, but it is way too long. Um, and you would have expected when when it, when it, the decriminalisation happened that this would have gone side by side with it, but obviously it didn't. And even things like, for example, you know, getting visas into countries if you have a criminal conviction, all of those kind of things would have a bearing on somebody's life. So Anytime it's really... you re request a guard of vetting, this would have come up in your Absolutely, record. absolutely. So, it, I mean, it's very welcome, but it has to happen. It has to happen quickly now that the announcement has been has been made. Um, okay. There was another announcement today as well, Daniel. This is in relation to conversion therapy. You mm. might just very briefly outline what that is and what has been promised yeah, today. Sure. So conversion therapy is essentially, or it's defined as the sort of the practice of attempting to change a person's sexual orientation or gender identity. Um, and there are plans, obviously, to ban it. Um, and that obviously was destroyed at the cabinet today. Um, I, I, this Talk is, about maybe legislation around the summer break or before the summer recess. Yeah, perhaps? like I, I mean, it, it will depend, I suppose, on how how packed the the legislation kind of the, the schedule is before the the summer break. But I mean, at, at the intention certainly we were being led to believe that it would be be moved on pretty pretty you know pretty quickly. I think there was obviously a, an attempt by government to announce all of this in in conjunction with Pride Week. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think just back to, to what Carl and, and Catherine were saying, I mean, th this thing cuts to the very core of how cruel and how cold this state really was to minorities and, and to people who were, didn't fit into the sort of Catholic ethos or the Catholic version of, of, of life in Ireland. And you think It's of, not that long ago. It's either. not that long ago, but even I was in preparation for today, I was reading back on some of the debates of the, when the law was decriminalised in 1993. And it was sort of cast in the in the tone that this is essentially a sop to you know like you know like you know, if you're like the the Catholic way of life this was not you know it, it was almost cast you know don't be so offended you know this is a minor change and and but ultimately it was like if you're you know it, it, it was in a very cold way that it was you know the morality you know it's talked would almost take precedence over the the wellness and, and the, the happiness of, of many people in this country and as Carl alluded to as well many people had no other option but to leave this country mm. because they, they, they felt no no welcome here. Um, and I just think it's really depressing. It's really sad to think mm. that, you know, when when the government signalled a move and did the apology in 2018, it's taken to this point now to get this apology or to get this move, the, the legislative move, and, and to get the move to, 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 I suppose, quash these convictions. I just yeah. think it's, it's shameful, really. Yeah, but what also struck me today, I have to say, NASA, was, yes, how cruel this country has been in the past, and yet... You know, in recent months in this programme, we have covered the increase in what appears to be homophobic attacks in Dublin and perhaps in other parts of the country. And I wonder, we've had these major milestones. We had the, you know, marriage equality legislation, the decriminalisation of homosexuality. We have this move today. Have we, though, as a society, or are we in danger of regressing here a bit? No, I, I think that it's very welcome, the announcements today, particularly around uh, the banning of conversion therapy going forward. Um, but I, I think possibly as important is the very clear statement from government and the state in general of, um, you know, support for the LGBTQI um, community and um, a direction for the country. And certainly we have seen, I think it's 83% increase last year in attacks, um, um, homophobic attacks, and also just rising hate, particularly on social media against, let's say, the trans community, which I have to say, you're talking about sad and depressing things. I don't, when you tweet about the trans issue, the, the level of hate that you get makes, it's one of the things that makes me saddest as a public representative. Um, so I, I think this is a very important kind of um, momentum momentum uh, and certainly it's a part of the programme for government that we were very um, uh, involved in and very happy to see it announced. Okay, very briefly, Carl, do you feel that we perhaps have regressed at all as a society, we've, that our attitudes are changing again? 
I think we need to be careful. I think we need to realise that this is a very small number of individuals who are doing this. They seem like they're very uh, big and loud because they're using platforms on social media, which is allowing them to do that. Very often it's small, uh, it's a small group of individuals using multiple accounts to make it seem like there's a lot of them. So yes, we need to be careful, we need to be cautious, and we need to make sure that people are safe. But at the same time, I think we need to be, uh, you know, find the balance with that and, you know, find the... If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Support comes from ServiceNow the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier, all built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more. Scale at which it's happening. My experience um, of, as a gay man in our society is that the overwhelming majority of people support me. Are tolerant and, and accepting. 100%. Yeah. Well, it's good to hear that. All right, we're going to leave that there for now. My thanks to Carl Hayden. Coming up after the break, another row over the long-awaited Children's Hospital. Will there be another delay? What will it cost? And later, we take a look at the story that is really gripping people across the world, the desperate search for five people missing in a submersible in the mid-Atlantic. Minister says there's no assurance that the National Children's Hospital will be handed over on time. Stephen Donnelly was speaking after reports that 11 operating theatres in the hospital will need remedial building work and its board denies that the delay could cost millions. Here's what the Health Minister and Sinn Féin had to say today. 
programme of works from the contractor that shows that this hospital is going to be handed over as agreed next March. They don't have a contract of works that is compliant. Well, I have documentation uh, which proves that the board was made aware of this in May. It was again ma made aware again in October and obviously then acted in uh, May of this year. So that takes far too long for me to deal with this issue. Daniel McConnell, Nasser Hurgan and Catherine Murphy are still with me. I want to go to you first, Daniel, because at this day started off this morning with these claims from David Cullinan that remedial works needed to be carried out to 11 operating theatres. He said it could delay the project by 12 months, mm. could cost 50 million. And really the board has come out today and dismissed that Very and said there are minor works not going to affect the completion date. Who's got the full story here? Who's the right picture? Yeah, so David Cullinan was certainly, I suppose the charge against David Cullinan was that he'd been somewhat alarmist. And I think Stephen Donnelly went harder than that and called him, you know, essentially looking to, cast, uh, you know, basically make it look like a catastrophe. I won't try and mangle that particular yes. phrase. Um, uh, but the board's response was very robust, i.e. that it says, you know, you know, these are minor works, they will not delay. Yes, there are, there are issues with kind of 11 operating theatres, but, you know, they will not ultimately overly delay. Um, the problem is, is that, as David Cullinan outlined, this was flagged last May, but wasn't, you know, kind of escalated up to the minister's office, and that's a serious, that's a serious issue, um, and also as well. And would we expect this is they call this a change order, a massive project like this? There's a lot of change orders. Yeah. Would you expect all of those to be flagged? I would think, but if David Cullinan on one hand is saying that this is such a massive issue that it should be flagged up, um, then you would have expected it to be. I suppose it just it, it, it's down on to your level of interpretation. The board is saying these are minor works. We're, we're on top of this. It's rolling on. We'll, we'll finish. Obviously, Sinn Féin are taking a, a different view in relation to it. The problem from the board and from the government's perspective, this is a project that's now massively delayed you know, and is massively over budget. So there's a credibility issue there when it comes to the delivery of this. And we obviously know that there have been long-standing issues with the contractor, the main contractor, BAM, in terms of, you know, there are obviously issues outstanding in relation to, to the parties there. The scale of this project, I mean, I don't, doesn't, like, the, the stock answer we get back from government all the time now is, well, listen, we have to commit to it. It's, it's you know, it'll be transformative for children. And it'll be worth it. I keep hearing this, it'll be worth it. But listen, we heard that about the Port Tunnel, we heard that about various other projects that went way over budget and way over time. So, I, I, I mean, we don't have a very good track record of delivering major projects like this, and this is just the latest example of it. Yeah. Now, so do you have clarity today? I mean, were you privy to these documents or this information that David Cullinan... No, uh, and part one of saying they're major works, one is saying it's minor works. Which is it? Part of the frustration here is that there is no clarity. Neither party has released these these details. And as you say, change orders would be absolutely standard in a in a hospital. But it's the magnitude of change that is is the the thing here. And you know, certainly at the beginning, I, I, I was to some extent dismissing this insofar as I thought, well, you know, because of evidence based design, hospital design does change through even during a project, even when you're on site, it does change. However, um, when we started to see comments around things like services and ceilings, all of a sudden, you know, uh, my alarm, alarm bells. bells start going because anything to do with services, you know, theatres are a proprietary item in a hospital. They have specialists come in and, and fit these out. Um, I, I also kind of got alarm bells when um, the timeline was set out because if this had been flagged to the board in May, you know, 
May of the, last year. May of last year. Last year in October, we had a session in the Health Committee on the Children's Hospital, and I think it was Deputy Colin Burke who asked specifically around the fit-out of theatres and got quite a long answer, none of which outlined any concerns around the development of theatres. So I have to say I agree with Daniel that um, the issue is here is around communication. There has been a total lack of transparency and, and communication with the Health Committee. I think we assumed that the board was communicating to the minister and the HSE and the department, but perhaps they're not. Um, and certainly the response from the minister today and, and from the Taoiseach indeed seemed to, to imply that they were surprised and I have to take that at face value and, and suspect that, that the board did not communicate what could be a significant issue but as I say having not seen it none of us know. Well, as, how do we find out Catherine what's yeah, going on well, here? That, that's exactly where the alarm bells were ringing for me that it appeared that, that the Taoiseach looked for a document from uh, you know Mary Lou Macdonald today and it, mm. Children's Health Ireland are the organisation that are going to run this hospital. If they've done a report they've gone in and they're, they're obviously going in and doing getting an independent report to see will the hospital run as it should is it being built as it should if that if that report is there um and the Taoiseach doesn't know about it I think there's a really serious problem and the Minister for um, Health it yeah, appears doesn't know about absolutely. it and seems the Secretary General that, didn't know about that, this that, that's that's number one thing the second thing is that we've been following this on the Public Accounts Committee from the point of view of the cost in fact even the accounts haven't the, the last set of accounts we got were 2020. Mm. The, you know, the very fact that there's that kind of slippage is a problem. But You do have things... this sense, don't you, every time you hear about the Children's Hospital, there's spiralling costs, there's huge time delays, and you wonder, who has real control of this project? Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and that's what we were trying to get our heads around about, you know, where are the timelines? I mean, we were, we, in February, we were told that the National Children Paediatric Hospital Development Board, who are, who are the, running the project, we were told that they were uh, waiting for the, you know, the programme of, of completion. Um, this is the programme of works which Stephen Donnelly referred yeah, to there, which and, they have asked for and haven't received. And, and now they're saying uh, they still haven't got it, and they're going to put they're going to put a penalty, a fifteen uh, deduct fifteen percent from BAM for you know uh, claims that are approved. Um, as a penalty to, to get them to, to come into compliance. Now, how they can say in the same statement that the, you know, that the hospital is going to be com completed, uh, the construction work is going to be completed by March next year, and at the same time they haven't got the completion mm. uh, mm. schedule, is just, you know, it's, it's a paradox. So I want to see the evidence, um, and I certainly have a very significant level of concern even more so than I would have had a month ago. And I imagine a month ago you were still pretty concerned about Absolutely. this project. Yeah. Do you have any idea at this time, NASA? Can anybody put a figure, not when the building works are going to be finished, but when this a hospital is going to be operational? When it's going to be operational, so last time, because obviously um, I think I was at those PAC sessions mm -hmm. and on the health committee sessions, and um, I think it's important to say that you know, what the government has said, or sorry, what the department has said is that they haven't had a compliant work schedule. Mm. So that implies that they have received a work schedule, but, but it doesn't fulfil that target of March 2024. Now, March 2024 means significant completion, which basically means most of the shell is done, most of the finishes are done. But obviously, modern, modern hospitals are so complex that there's about six to eight months of commissioning then. So at best, we're looking at maybe early 2025. If, if this is significant... Uh, you're probably looking at maybe the end of 2025 or possibly 26. When will we find out, do you think, the, the truth, whether these are major, major or minor works, whether it's going to cost 50 million or an insignificant sum of money? 
How do we find that out? It's very difficult because, like David Cullinan, I suppose, was called on by by the government side of the uh, the house today to to reveal his source. And you know, is this is this a series of documents? Is this kind of just a whistleblower's testimony or or whatever is it is? And he was refusing to reveal his source. Um, but he did say it was somebody who was very close to the project. And, and I think and, tonight and, he is standing and by not, his. And to be honest with you, I'm not dating David. David Cullinan's bona fides in relation to that, but I suppose you know, from you know, in terms of, it's not like we have a finished report in front of us, you know, kind of either released, you know, by a leak or released through an FOI or anything like that. We just don't have the document or the full text of of, of what's there. So I, I think ultimately we're kind of stuck in this kind of holding pattern until either the government cough up a report, so it either disproves David Cullinan's version of events or goes some way to kind of stand to what he or to stand to what he's saying. It was interesting though, you know, that the 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 the, the, the overall gist of what David Cullenhan was was kind of alleging was confirmed by, by the board in terms of, yes, there are ventilation issues, yes, they relate to 11 uh, hospitals. I suppose they're just quibbling with the scale of it. They're, you know, he's saying major, they're saying minor. All right, OK, look, we're going to have to leave that there for now, but it is certainly an issue that we will come back to again on this programme. My thanks to Nessa Hurrigan and to Catherine Murphy for joining us. Daniel is going to be staying with me as we have the very latest on the search for a submersive in the mid-Atlantic. Officials say they only have 37 hours of breathable air left. And President Biden's son, Hunter, has agreed to plead guilty to a number of crimes. We'll bring you the very latest from Washington. That's all coming up. US President Joe Biden's son is to plead guilty to a number of crimes. Hunter Biden will plead guilty to willfully failing to pay income taxes and admitting to illegally possessing a gun. Well, let's go to our reporter, Kate Fisher, who is in Washington, D.C. Kate, you're very welcome to the programme. How do these charges come about? Well, this was uh, the result of a really detailed five-year investigation into Hunter Biden. And it began as a much more wide-ranging one, looking at his international business dealings, looking at accusations that he'd used his family name to uh, perhaps do business abroad and were there any national security problems with that. But it's narrowed down into these tax evasion charges and gun charge in the end. And that is what uh, he's been charged with. He's pleaded guilty to those two tax charges. And on the gun charge, which was being uh, charged with buying a firearm while being uh, addicted or using illegal substances, uh, he has uh, a, something called a pre-trial diversion, which means that as long as he enters a programme and does not use drugs for the next two years and never owns a gun, then that charge will disappear. Uh, we know, and I'm sure we all remember, the Republicans going for Hunter Biden right throughout Joe Biden's campaign. What are they saying today, given the fact that they had made so many major allegations about Joe Biden and these are the charges that have ultimately resulted? Well, huge criticism from the Republicans, as you can imagine. And right at the top, Donald Trump took to his Truth Social platform immediately after this announcement, saying that Hunter Biden had got away with a mere traffic ticket, uh, alluding to the huge uh, criminal issues that he's going through at the moment. The same day, earlier on today, we, we learned that the judge in his classified documents trial is expected to start that trial mid-August. So he 
and fellow Republicans saying that if you compare the two issues, it's simply not fair. Uh, Democrats saying that, well, it's a completely different set of charges, uh, much lighter ones for Hunter Biden. And this came, this plea deal was arranged after five years of uh, diligent investigation. And also uh, the attorney general in charge in Delaware of the investigation into Hunter Biden was in fact appointed by Donald Trump when he was president. The Democrats pointing to the fact that Joe Biden could have removed him but left him in uh, to keep investigating his son. Uh, on the effect this is having on Joe Biden, he and his wife Jill issued a statement simply saying we love uh, they love their son and support him as he continues to rebuild his life. But certainly, I'm sure Republicans will once again be using Hunter Biden in their campaigning against uh, Joe Biden as this uh, race for the presidential election in 2024 heats up. Yeah, I'm sure he will feature again. Kate Fisher, thank you for bringing us that story. Now to the other story that has shocked the world. There are just 37 hours left to locate and save the missing sub that disappeared while on an expedition to visit the wreck of the Titanic. Five people, including a 19-year-old, were on board the vessel, which lost contact on Sunday. As the clock ticks down, the US Coast Guard said they're doing all that they can. We will do everything in our power to, uh, to affect a rescue. Um, again, uh, it's going to depend on uh, if, if the ROV finds something, it's going to depend on what they find, what, what needs to be, uh, what steps need to be taken next. And, uh, and really that is for the experts within the Unified Command um, to take a look at and then, and then uh, decide what the best course of action is. Well, this is the live scene in St. John's, Newfoundland, Canada, where these expeditions expeditions to the Titanic wreck usually take off from. Daniel McConnell is still with me and I'm joined via Skype by Aidan Fitzgerald, Research Vessel Manager at the Marine Institute. Um, just very quickly, Daniel, the one thing I keep thinking about is that these five individuals, they cannot self-rescue. They are bolted into this submersive and only way out is external help. Absolutely. And, you know, I suppose that there were very finite uh, amount of air left. You know what I mean? The, you know, the, the hours are very much ticking by. Now, generally, with these sort of rescue missions, there is a protocol. I mean, these are, you know, they generally do a certain level of contingency planning, but this this this, this vessel has simply gone off radar. Um, and, you know, when, when you have to scour such a large area at such depth, I mean, it's a very, very, very scary expedition that the rescuers are, are now engaged in. And, um, you know, uh, you know, you would just wish uh, them all the very best. But again, again, it's just you know, the, the, the odds are unfortunately stacked against them. Yeah, you know, you keep hearing this phrase, needle in a haystack, don't you? Mm. It must be so, so difficult. Aidan, to go to you, we see a footage now, which is footage of this uh, submersible. What must it be like to be inside this, I think it's 6.7 metres long inside this capsule? Well, I suppose it very depends on which situation they've ended up in. But uh, if, it, for example, it was a comms failure or a power loss in the unit, it would be dark and very cold. Um, obviously, if they're entangled or stuck in the bottom somehow, uh, it's dark, very cold, and they can't come to the surface. Um, I guess other things that may have happened, in, which is a very high uh, risk, is something like a fire on board, which would cause lots of noxious fumes. And of course, uh, with their, you know, oxygen and things, uh, not not a good mix. Uh, and then I suppose finally, if they've had a, a catastrophic hull breach or failure, um, you know, it's a different situation again. Uh 
Talk to me about the complexity of an operation like this, some of the challenges that those trying to rescue these individuals will be currently wrestling with. Yeah, so I suppose in some ways, if the vessel has come, it has a, it automatically releases some weights after 24 hours if it's if it's in difficulty and it should float to the surface. So um, it could be it could be floating in the surface. Obviously, it doesn't float very high out of the water. If it has had a power loss, it may not be able to use its communication systems to indicate its position to the surface vessels. Um, if the vessel is on the is on the seabed still or entangled in nets somewhat or something like that in mid water or something like that, uh, you're trying to look for with sonar because of where it is around the Titanic. There's a huge debris field around the Titanic, so and this is very small compared to anything off the Titanic. So it's very difficult to pick uh, this object out with sonar as if they're using sonar on ROVs or anything like that. So it's really challenging, uh, to be honest with you. Um, I was watching clips on Channel 4 News this evening from a CBS documentary that actually went out and looked at this submersible and they were talking about, you know, the waiver that you sign before you agree to go on one of these missions and it acknowledged that this was experimental, that this perhaps, you know, was quite um, an unusual thing for, you know, those with maybe even experience in diving to do. Talk to me about the risk that would have been taken here. Yeah, so there, submersibles used to be much more common back uh, before ROV, ROVs became in use. Uh, ROVs are unmanned submersibles. Uh, they would have been used in the oil and gas industry in that. So they're now used in the scientific field somewhat and in the sort of adventure, you know, exploration field. But most of them would be classified by a classification society. So they'd be tested, they'd be built to certain standards. Uh, but this one seem, seemingly was built, it was built of a sort of uh, using carbon fiber for the main tube and titanium at either end. And I believe that it wasn't sort of falling under any of the classification society's certifications. So it was very experimental, and I suppose that was made clear to everybody who, who who was using it. So I think it was obviously pushing the limits to be able to carry five people down so deep. Most of them would only carry two people. So I think they were pushing the boundaries, uh, you know, and to make it as useful as possible using uh, advanced materials and things like that. But yeah, so there obviously I'm sure everybody was well aware of the level of risk that they were embarking on. And I suppose the system, compared to other things, wouldn't have as many levels of redundancy for... Uh, maybe power, maybe communications and things like that. So, yeah, it's uh, obviously a, a, a high-risk trip. Yeah. One of the only previous occasions, I think, where a submersible did go off you know, the radar uh, was actually off the Irish coast, wasn't it, back in 1973? Uh, it was a successful outcome there. Tell us what happened. Yeah, I was, it was the Pisces uh, ROV, I think, in 1973. Yeah, a couple of hundred miles south of Cork. I think they were working on um, jetting in uh, transatlantic uh, cables. Uh, it was eventually that they, the guys uh, lost, I think, power and were, were on the bottom. And they recovered them using a combination of manned submarines and an, actual, an ROV. And the ROV attached uh, a line to, to, the, to, the, to the sub and it was brought to the surface successfully. And I think they had only minutes to spare in terms of the amount of oxygen on board. Yeah. So I suppose as this rescue uh, goes on, it's going to become more, far more critical as well like that. So you would imagine that, uh, I know there's a vessel, the French vessel, the L'Atalante, which is from the the Ifremer, which is the French um, Marine Research Agency. It's en route uh, to the scene as well, and it has a 
the Victor 6000 ROV on, which is a very capable ROV that can go to 6000 meters. So they would have been involved in the search for the Air France black box and stuff like that. So there's a lot of experience there. Okay. So they're on their way as well. And that's a very capable unit. And I believe there is another ROV on the scene as well now uh, off a cable air ship, I think. So I, I guess they're gathering. You can see now all the vessels that are above the spot on, on the, the marine traffic site. So they're they're on their way there, and the best tools are on their way now. So hopefully, if it is on the bottom, uh, they have the the tools to be able to recover that. Otherwise, you know, it may be it may be on the surface, right. uh, and uh, waiting for uh, support. Okay, Aidan Fitzgerald, thank you for speaking to us and, and for your insight. Um, I know in your previous newspaper, Danny, you would have spoken to one of the divers that's actually on this submersible, and he spoke at length about taking risks mm. and accepting that risk is very much part of a mission like this. What drives people to do that? Yeah, well, I suppose it's the sense of adventure, I think, also as well. I mean, people, you know, where do they go flying or where do they go down deep sea diving? It's that element of, I suppose, getting to parts of the world that most people will never get to see. It's no more than, you know, those who seek to go into space or, see, you know, the kind of the billionaires, adventurers who want to go into space. Well, um, I did hear a line today that actually this part of the ocean would have been less explored than space. Yes, and and when you think of the when you think of the extremes that people are talking about, I mean, it's you know, you're the, like the RV unit that Aidan was talking about can go down to six hundred or six thousand meters. I mean, that's an incredible depth, and the simple pressure on 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 your body, you know, given the, the the pressure of the water, is so intense. So there would be a question mark over if if the vessel has gone down that far, whether or not it could stand that that level of mm. pressure. The pressure um, of having the Empire State Building on top of you is what yeah, I read somewhere yeah. today. What is the obsession? Today, because we saw the footage there of um, the uh, submersible uh, at the uh, Titanic, which I think the company mm. had actually put up um, mocked footage. What is the obsession with the Titanic? Well, I suppose given the tragedy of the scale of loss of life at the time, this was the world's unsinkable ship that ultimately went down on its maiden voyage. So there's always been this mystique about the, the Titanic, and there have been many, many people who've wanted to go see it in its current state to see whether or not there's anything they can do with it. Um, but the, and that mystery, I don't think, is going to end. Given obviously, given the situation we're finding ourselves in. All right. Daniel McConnell, thank, thank you for joining you. us this evening. That is it from us. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms, and you can find us on Instagram and TikTok tonight, VM TV. But from all of the late team here, good night and do take care. <laughs>